Happy New Year, my friends. It's 2018. And today's New Year's Day message is simply called Everyday Christ Follower. And it's based on a text that I love from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 to 12. And I want to start with a quote by Mark Twain. He said, It ain't the parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. And all God's people would say, Amen. We certainly know what he meant. You know, you can spend years studying difficult Bible passages and come to a way more confused than when you started. Even Peter confessed that some of the things Paul wrote were hard to understand. Now, if Peter had trouble with Paul, we shouldn't be surprised when we struggle to understand some parts of the Bible. Or you can ponder these simple words of Jesus from Luke 6.31, Do for others what you want them to do for you. Now, that's sort of the thing that Mark Twain was thinking about. There's nothing tricky about the words. There are no translation problems. This verse, which we call the Golden Rule, states a principle for conduct that is timeless in its simplicity. But how do we put them into practice? Well, we face the same challenge when we come to our text. The words are clear enough, but what will we, but will we do what they say? 1 Thessalonians 4, 9-12 teaches us how to love others and how to live intentionally so that our lives win the respect of outsiders. It's sometimes what I call building a bridge between us and someone else, a bridge that over which Jesus can ultimately walk. And you know, we need this message because the church has lost its witness to the world. Somewhere along the way, we have lost sight of what we might call being an everyday Christ follower. And even though we live in a high-tech world, the needs of the heart have not changed. People still want to know, where is the message that can change my life, forgive my sins, and give me a fresh start? We need to hear what God is saying to us today. And as you listen with your heart today, in this new year, I just want you to note that our passage contains two exhortations that we need to take seriously, not just in 2.18, but every year afterwards. And we see the first one in verses 9 to 10, and the second one in verses 11 to 12. And each one describes what the church owes the world. Now first, we owe them an example of brotherly love. Paul begins with a simple reminder in verse 9. Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you. That's an interesting way to put it, isn't it? I don't need to remind you about this, but I will anyway. Well, the Greek word for brotherly love is Philadelphia. It refers to the love of family members for one another. It comes from two Greek words that have been joined together, philos, which means tender affection or fondness or devotion. It's a word that implies our obligation to love. And adelphos, usually translated brother, literally means one born of the same womb. So the word Philadelphia literally means tender affection owed to those born from the same womb. Now, it's easy to understand why Paul chose this word to describe brotherly love. All Christians have been born of the same womb through the new birth. Everyone who is saved is saved the same way. I mean, God does not have three different plans of salvation. You know, plan A for Protestants and plan B for Catholics and plan C for everyone else. Jesus said in John 3, 3, you must be born again. And to be born again means to receive new life through personal faith in Jesus, the Messiah, born from God's womb. So everyone who belongs to Jesus belongs to me. I owe all of them Philadelphia, tender affection, and true devotion. 
But I want you to note three facts about this brotherly love. Fact number one, it is taught to us by God himself. In verse 9 it says, For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. The word translated taught by God appears nowhere else in the New Testament. It speaks not of a lesson learned in the classroom, but of truth learned through relationship. Now, what's the best way to learn Spanish? Well, I suppose you could move to Mexico, live with a Mexican-speaking family. You'd immerse yourself in Mexican culture, watch Mexican television, read Mexican newspapers, and soon the atmosphere of Mexico itself would enter your bloodstream. The same is true of regarding love. You learn to love by associating with loving people. I mean, love isn't taught, they say, it's caught. Because we come from the womb of God, we share his basic nature, which is love. Therefore, love ought to be the most natural thing for the believer to express. We love because God is love. It's a family trait. That's why Paul doesn't have to teach it. To be a Christian is to enter a fellowship of brotherly love. And here's fact number two. It reaches out to love all God's children. Verse 10 says, And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Now, that's not easy to do. Most of us love some of the brothers, maybe even most of the brothers, but all of them, yeah, that's a different case. That's kind of tough. But let me be clear about this. We are to love all true believers everywhere all the time. And that's hard because most of us have some inner reservations. We don't like this group or that denomination. Maybe we're not comfortable being in a service where everyone prays out loud at the same time or we don't understand why people worship using a hymn book. We may distrust even those people who have a different worship style. Now, there will always be points of difference among God's people. I mean, redemption in Christ does not homogenize the church. Believers have disagreed on key issues for 2,000 years, and I don't believe we must abandon our doctrinal or cultural distinctives. But if we take Paul seriously, then we must seek to love other Christians who may see the world quite differently than we do. The love of God is not limited, not by nation or ocean or tribe or tongue or custom or clothing or race or politics or caste or any other human condition. When the love of God captures us, our hearts will be as big as his, reaching to the ends of the earth. And here's fact number three. It should always be increasing in our lives. Verse 10 says, yet we urge your brothers to do so more and more. Now, what does it mean that our love should increase? Well, it means that we should increase in our sympathy for those in need, patience for those who are struggling, and tolerance toward those with whom we disagree. The most powerful recommendation for any church is this, that the members love one another. i got to tell you, friends, the world really longs for this, and they flocks to where it's found. When the unchurched are asked what they want in the church, the answer is always the same. They're looking for a caring church. Not just a friendly church or a relevant church or a church with a bunch of kids' programs. And not just a church where the Bible is clearly taught. As good as those things are, they don't touch the heart cry for a place where they can be deeply loved. When the people of the world find such a place, they stand in line to get in. Now, how does God help us to grow in this area? Well, simply by putting us in situations that force us to practice Christian love. Now, over the years, I've observed God do this again and again. He allows two people to have difficulties with each other, sometimes to the point of anger and bitterness. He does it because the only way we learn to love is by dealing with unlovely people. 
I've seen it happen between husbands and wives, parents and kids, between co-workers, neighbors, fellow students and relatives. People who start out disliking each other sometimes end up as the best of friends. C.S. Lewis pointed out that, quote, we may talk so much about loving people in general that we love no one in particular, end of quote. Another writer graphically describes the problem of loving the unlovely. They wrote, quote, some people are so miserably unlovable. That odorous person with the nasty cough who sat next to you in the train shoving his newspaper into your face. Those crude louts in the neighborhood with the barking dog. That smooth liar who took you in so completely last week. By what magic are you supposed to feel toward these people anything but revulsion, distrust and resentment, and a justified desire to have nothing to do with them? End of quote. I don't need to tell very many of you that we're still in the aftermath of a pretty bitter political season in America. I mean, Christians, too, seem about as deeply as divided as I can remember. I mean, some Christians can't even begin to fathom how other Christians could have voted for that person. And in this case, that person might be the winner or the loser. It really depends on how you voted. And some of this comes with the territory. We shouldn't expect Christians to always agree on how to vote. But in times like these, friends, when feelings run deep and tempers are short, we must extend grace to each other. Even though I may not understand the way you voted, if you are my brother or sister in Christ, we have a common faith that runs deeper than who happens to occupy the White House. We must find a way to love each other, especially in times like these. And we're taught by God to love each other. May God help us do it. In many cases, we'll find it easier to love others from a distance, at least for a while. And we can't love everyone the same way or to the same degree. But if all Christians at all, if we are Christians at all, we must find a way to love even when loving is hard to do. It is not magic, but rather the power of the Holy Spirit who causes us to love the unlovely. The church is to be a community of love, and we owe it to the Lord, to each other, and to the watching world. See, let brotherly love abound more and more. Let Christian sympathy go out to those in need. Let's take the the banner of God's concern around the world. Let's pray for one another, and especially for those with whom we disagree. Let our hearts grow in brotherly love for all God's children everywhere. You see, we owe the world that kind of example. And here's our second challenge. It's a challenge to balanced living. In verse 11, it says, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands just as we told you. Now, to understand this verse, we need to know that in Thessalonica, there had been great excitement about the Lord's return. When he was with them, Paul had taught them about the imminent return of Jesus. And the word imminent means at any moment. It means that Jesus could return today or tomorrow or next week or next year. Now, whenever people get excited about the Lord's return... There are always those who take it to extremes. You may remember the worldwide commotion when a man named Harold Camping predicted the end of the world on May the 21st in 2011. Now, in answer to that kind of extremism, Paul issued a very strong call for balanced living. And he gives us three commands, each of which answers a common problem. Now, command number one is live a quiet life. This is the answer to the problem of restlessness. The word quiet comes from a Greek word meaning Sabbath rest. It speaks of a break of work or the end of a conflict or peace after warfare. 
Be ambitious, Paul said, to live quietly. We need this admonition because our ambition tends to be noisy, to make a splash, to make a name for ourselves, to get ahead, to kind of rise above the crowd or to climb that corporate ladder, trampling on people on the way up. Eugene Peterson translates this phrase with two words. He says, stay calm. It means to be less frantic and more settled in your life. Now, these words fit our workaholic age. We live in hurried times with little sense of stillness and rest. We measure our success by how much we accomplish each day. And no wonder we're restless and edgy and tense and nervous and easily distracted. We talk, but we have nothing to say, and we listen without hearing a word. Peter Marshall, who was chaplain of the United States Senate in the years just after World War II, is often remembered for his rather pithy prayers that open each session. Here's the prayer he prayed on May the 8th, 1947. Help us to do our very best this day and be content with today's troubles, so that we shall not borrow the troubles of tomorrow. Save us from the sin of worrying, lest stomach ulcers be the badge of our lack of faith. Amen. Here's command number two. Mind your own business. <laughs> That's a tough one. This is the answer to the problem of meddlesomeness. Now, we all know people like this. They're busybodies who feel called to mind uh, not only their business, but yours as well. They believe they have a right to invade your privacy. And this is a perverted view of brotherly love. A busybody has a compulsive itch to set other people right. Years ago, a, a ministry leader told me that he often reminded his staff to, quote, feel free to have no opinion about that, end of quote. Well, command three is this, work with your own hands. And this is the answer to the problem of idleness. If you're looking for welfare reform, it be begins right here. Paul literally worked with his hands as a tent maker so he could support himself while he preached the gospel. Even though he was highly educated, he didn't mind challenging work and he didn't find manual labor embarrassing. Well, the upper classes of Greece despised manual labor. That's why they owned so many slaves. But Christianity brought in a new ethic based on personal responsibility and hard work. Remember, even Jesus was a carpenter's son. Someone has said it's a terrible thing for religious people to have nothing to do but be religious. And again, those who get up early in the morning with nothing to do but be religious are generally a great nuisance. Now, who makes a real impact for Jesus in, in the world? The person who gets up in the morning, works all day, and attending to tasks at home or on the job with cheerfulness. Now, how we work is crucial as how we pray. There's no greater testimony than the Christian mechanic, the Christian teacher, the Christian secretary, the Christian nurse at the hospital, or the Christian accountant keeping the books. See, going to church means little if you are a lazy gold brick on the job. Most of us don't see our daily work as a way to worship God, but it is. What you do on Monday is just as sacred in the eyes of the Lord as what you do on Sunday. And here's third. It's the difference we will make. Verse 12 says, So that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Now, Paul wraps up our passage with a word about the impact this life makes. First, you will win the respect of outsiders. Well, let me state it negatively and positively. On the negative side, don't be lazy and give the church a black eye. Or the positive side, you can make the church beautiful by the way you do your job. 
remember someone said you're the only Bible someone will ever read. You're also the only Christian that some people may ever meet. I mean, what do people read, hear, and see when they look at your life? See, the lowliest occupation becomes a powerful sermon when done with dignity and honesty and diligence and faithfulness. The common man who does his common job with uncommon grace will never lose his self-respect and will win respect for the church of Jesus. Friends, when we show that our faith makes us better workers, truer friends, better neighbors, kinder men and women, then we are really preaching. Our lives are sermons that draw others to Jesus or push them away from him. And second, you will not be dependent on others. There is a good kind of independence we should all strive for. It's the kind that comes from paying your bills on time so you don't have to steal, borrow money, or run up a huge credit card debt. There is nothing wrong with accepting charity in time of need, but to come to depend on it and to think it is owed you is a terrible sin. So what does the church owe the world? Well, if we stand back and look at the first 12 verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we get an answer like this. Each Christian, each Christ follower, is under obligation for three things. A holy life, free from immorality. A harmonious life, always increasing in brotherly love. An honest life, living quietly, minding our own business, working with our own hands. Friends, in 2018 and beyond, if you want to make an impact on this world, this is where you need to begin. So I pray, Lord Jesus, help us to be everyday Christ followers, whose faith shows in the way we love and the way we live, in the precious and the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Until next time, see the vision, live the mission, and feel the passion.